Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm trying to free your mind, Neo. But I can only show you the door. You're the one that has to walk through it. Welcome everyone to the Origins Podcast. This is your host Paul and this is episode 180. Our first story this week comes from the smithsonianmag.com website and it's written by Jason Daly. This humongous fungus is as massive as three blue whales. A new estimate suggests this mushroom is two and a half thousand years old and weighs 440 tonnes. The blue whale gets a lot of ink for being the largest animal to ever live beating out even the biggest dinosaurs. But it turns out that the largest organisms on Earth aren't in the oceans. They are beneath our feet. By weight and area, honey mushrooms in the genus Armillaria beat whales many times over. Now, reports Matthew Torbert, Atlas Obscura, a new analysis of the original humongous fungus in Michigan's Upper Peninsula, shows the massive mushroom is much bigger and much older than researchers first believed. About 25 years ago, researchers discovered that an Armillaria gallica mushroom near Crystal Falls, Michigan, covered about 91 acres, weighed 110 tonnes and was about 1,500 years old, setting a new record for the largest organism at the time. For a new study, James Anderson, a biologist at the University of Toronto and one of the original discoverers of the fungus, returned to the site and took 245 samples from the mushroom and examined its genome. The team confirmed that indeed the entire fungus is just one individual. The DNA also showed a very slow mutation rate meaning that the honey mushroom isn't evolving very quickly. The visit also led them to revise the fungus's age to two and a half thousand years and determine that it is four times as massive as the original estimate, or about 440 tonnes, the equivalent of three blue whales. How can a mushroom be that big? What we think of as mushrooms are just the fruiting bodies of the organisms, The main part of a mushroom is a mass of underground tendrils called mycelium, 
Depending on the species, these tendrils can feed on soil, decaying plant matter, or wood. In the case of the massive honey mushrooms, they have particularly thick black tendrils called rhizomorphs, reports Sarah Zhang at The Atlantic. The rhizomorphs can spread to an acre upon acre in search of wood to consume. While other mushrooms prefer already decaying wood, the honey mushroom infects living trees, often killing them over the course of several decades, then continues eating them after they are dead. While it's possible to find the underground mass by the honey mushrooms that it occasionally sends up, the telltale sign that the fungus is underfoot is the grove of dying trees above it. The Crystal Falls humongous fungus was the original humongous fungus that showed these organisms can reach massive size. But since its discovery, it has been eclipsed by other honey mushrooms. An armillaria found in eastern Oregon's Blue Mountains covers three square miles and may be over 8,000 years old, holding the current title for humongousest of the funguses. The size and huge distribution of these mushrooms underground is difficult to imagine. I wish all of the substrate, soil, wood and other matter the fungus grows on, would be transparent for five minutes, so I could see where it is and what it's doing, Anderson tells Zhang. We would learn so much from a five-minute glimpse. And from the inverse.com website, a story by Carolyn Spry. Ancient teeth reveal clues to why more people are right-handed. Roughly 90% of humans are right-handed, and this is one of the traits that separates us from other primates, who don't really show any overall preference for left or right-handedness. It's believed that handedness plays an important role in human evolution, with the recent study on the early evidence of right-handedness in the fossil record shedding light on when and why this trait arose. Interestingly, the clues were found not in our ancient hands, but in our ancient teeth. We have long known that the human brain is composed of two roughly similar halves. The left hemisphere controls language and motor abilities, whereas the right hemisphere is responsible for visual spatial attention. It is less well known that brain lateralization, or the dominance of some cognitive processes in one side of the brain, is a distinctive feature of humans and one associated with improved cognitive ability. Could handedness have played a role in brain lateralization? Ancient stone tools made and used by our earliest ancestors reveal some clues. The use of tools. The earliest stone tools date to 3.3 million years ago and were found in modern day Kenya, Africa. Early stone tool making would have required a high level of dexterity. 
We know from experiments that have replicated tool-making processes that the brain's left hemisphere, which is responsible for planning and execution, is active during this process. At the same time, humans are overwhelmingly right-handed when it comes to tool-making compared to other species. This is most likely because the left and right hemispheres control motor action on the opposite sides of the body. While this relationship is not straightforward, it would appear that in most cases handedness and brain lateralization go hand in hand. Pun intended. So why use teeth to investigate handedness? The answer lies in the scarcity of matching left and right arm bones in the fossil record, particularly those belonging to our earliest ancestors. Without matching left and right sets, it is impossible to examine differences in size and shape to determine which hand an individual favoured when completing manual tasks. Teeth, on the other hand, tend to survive relatively well in the fossil record and can preserve scratches or striations that establish handedness. In an earlier study, researchers noted striations on the front side of teeth belonging to European Neanderthals. They hypothesised that these marks were made when material was held in one hand and gripped between the front teeth and worked by the other hand with a stone tool with the stone tool occasionally striking these teeth. These actions were replicated during experiments in which participants wore mouthguards. The results indicated that right slanting striations are made on teeth when the material is pulled with the left hand and struck with the right hand. Right slanting striations are therefore a good indicator of right-handedness. The subject of the new study an ancient upper jawbone provides the oldest evidence for right-handedness known in our genus, Homo. The jawbone belonged to one of our earliest human ancestors, Homo habilis, literally the handyman, who roamed Tanzania in Africa around 1.8 million years ago. The jaw was identified at Olduvai Gorge in the Serengeti Plain, which has yielded some of the earliest archaeological traces in the world marks on teeth. The authors of the study noted a number of striations on the front side of the teeth. They used high-powered microscopes and digital cameras to investigate these striations, particularly patterning in their direction. Interestingly, nearly half of all striations were right slanting. Right slanting striations were particularly dominant on four of the front teeth left and right central incisors, right second incisor, and right canine. This led the authors to argue that most marks were made with the individual's right hand. They also suggested that the four front teeth, with many right slanting striations, were the focus of most processing activities. The Homo habilis jaw is important as it provides the oldest evidence for right-handedness in the fossil record but it is also significant as it suggests that a major level of brain organisation had occurred in humans by at least 1.8 million years ago. This brain development enabled us to master crucial early skills such as stone toolmaking and potentially also pave the way for language development. 
Right-handedness, therefore, means a lot more to us than simply a preference for using the right hand. Just some food for thought next time you are brushing your teeth, sending a text message, or high-fiving someone. And also from the inverse.com website, a story by Michelle Hall. And this is in response to a little girl called Hannah who lives in Toronto, Canada, and she's aged four. I would like to know, why do birds sing? Thanks, Hannah, aged four. Hi, Hannah. Thanks for your excellent question. Lots of animals use sounds to say things to other animals of their kind. People and birds that sing are a bit special though. Birds don't use words like people do, but they also need to learn their songs. The same way babies need to learn to talk by listening to their family speaking their own language. Most other animals are born already knowing the sounds they need to communicate, but baby birds spend a long time learning how to sing. First they listen to the way their mums, dads and neighbours do it, then they start to practice. And they only get good at it after lots of practice. Some birds start listening to their mum even before they hatch out of their eggs. Just like baby humans start listening to their mum while they're still inside her tummy. Scientists think birds sing mostly to impress other birds because it takes lots of practice to master the art. And maybe also for fun. Birds have some simple sounds that they use to say basic stuff like watch out there's danger or hi it's me. But bird songs are more complicated than calls and they usually use their songs to show off. Birds that spend lots of time and energy practicing to learn lots of different types of complicated songs are often better at impressing the others with their great song repertoire. Some birds have even bigger repertoires because they sing songs of other birds, like the amazing lyrebird, which you can imitate just about any sound. And if you visit the show notes at origins.info and click on the link to this article in episode 180 of the Origins podcast, there is a song of the magpie and also a song of the lyrebird, imitating kookaburras and other birds. Living in Canada or other places in North America and Europe means the birds you hear singing most often are the boys. They are usually singing to impress the girls and make the other boys stay away from their stuff, like their food or their territory. But girls sing too. Since way back in time when the family tree of the songbirds first started in the parts of the world around Australia. Even now, for people who live in Australia and other parts of the world, it's quite likely that a bird you hear singing is a girl. In birds where both sexes, boys and girls sing, they sometimes sing together to make duets. And there's also a recording here of the Australian magpie lark duet. We don't know as much about why girl birds sing, but we think they might also sing to show off. Keep your ears open and your eyes open and share what you find out. And there's also a recording of a superb fairy wren female singing as well. Could birds sing just because it makes them feel good? Like how people enjoy making and listening to music. For a long time we couldn't answer this question because we had no way of knowing about birds' feelings. 
Recently though, scientists have started using what we know about the things that happen in our brains when we feel good to try to work out whether singing might make birds feel good as well. Early indications are that when a bird is singing directly to another bird, its reward comes from the other bird's response to the song. Sometimes birds sing even if there are no birds nearby to react though. So maybe singing to itself causes changes in a bird's brain chemistry, like we experience when something makes us feel good. Singing often makes humans feel good too. And that recording was just a small excerpt from the lyrebird and its amazing ability to imitate just about any sound anywhere. Visit the show notes, have a look, click on the recordings, they're really quite amazing. Have you seen the old man in the closed-down market Kicking up the paper with his worn-out shoes In his eyes you see no pride And held loosely at his side Yesterday's paper telling yesterday's news So how can you tell me you're lonely and save for you that the sun don't shine Let me take you by the hand And lead you through the streets of London Show you something to make you change your mind How much do you know about the history of London? From underground Roman streets and the invention of Chelsea buns, to impaled heads on London Bridge, and the very first Globe Theatre. Here, filmmaker Richard Gard reveals the forgotten landmarks and traditions of England's capital. From the HistoryExtra.com website, 10 things you probably didn't know about the history of London. In his book Lost London, Gard reveals intriguing stories that lie beneath the city's familiar streets. To take readers on a journey through London's overlooked past. Here, writing for History Extra, Gard lists ten surprising facts about the history of London. The origin of Charing Cross. Also known as Eleanor's Cross, 
the original Charing Cross was erected by Edward I following the death of his wife of 36 years, Eleanor of Castile, in 1290. Edward had a memorial cross erected at every resting place of her funeral procession, the last being in the village of Charing, a stopover between the city of London and Westminster. The cross, built in the forecourt of Charing Cross Station, is a Victorian replacement of the original, 180 yards away from its former location, now marked by a statue of Charles I on horseback looking down Whitehall. The Invention of Chelsea Buns In the early 1700s, Chelsea Bun House was opened in Jews Row, now Pimlico Road, and it became the site of the invention of Chelsea Buns. Its proprietor, Richard Hand, decorated the interior with clocks and curious artefacts. In its day, the bun house was hugely famous, prompting Jonathan Swift to celebrate the rare Chelsea buns after he visited in 1711. It even found popularity among royalty, with both George II and George III visiting with their wives and children. So successful was the business that on Good Friday, crowds of more than 50,000 people gathered outside the premises to purchase its products. St Paul's was briefly trumped. A vast rotunda known as the Colosseum was built in Regent's Park by Decimus Burton between 1824 and 1827 featuring a dome very slightly larger than that of St Paul's Cathedral. It housed a huge canvas panorama of London, painted by Thomas Horner. However, the attraction's initial popularity soon waned, and in 1831 the building was sold to opera singer John Barnum, whose dream to turn it into an opera house took both his fortune and his health. Briefly used for magic lantern shows, the Colosseum was demolished in 1874 or 1875 and is now covered by Cambridge Gate. It was high class on the Strand. For 800 years before the embankment was built, the Strand was the site of many of London's finest houses. It boasted river views and close proximity to the city and Westminster. Durham House, an example of one such fine residence, was originally built in the mid-14th century as the townhouse of the Bishop of Durham. Though there was a residence of the Bishop of Durham on this site since at least 1220. It went on to serve as residence to both Cardinal Wolseley and Anne Boleyn, and eventually became the home of Sir Walter Raleigh. While living there, Raleigh was memorably drenched with beer by a servant who feared that his master had caught fire when he found him smoking. Euston's Lost Arch When Euston Station was first opened in 1837, its entrance was dominated by Euston Arch, which stood 70 feet high and was supported by four Doric columns to make it the largest arch in Great Britain. Some 100 years later, with the Victoria and Adelaide hotels having been built on either side, the arch was recognised as a major landmark and the most imposing entrance to a London terminus. When the station entrance was completely redesigned and rebuilt in 1962, 
the heedless demolition of the arch galvanised the nascent preservation movement. Although it failed to save the arch, many other historic buildings owe their survival to groups formed as a result. The very first Globe Theatre Considering that it is perhaps the most famous theatre in the world, the original Globe had a surprisingly short, though highly eventful, existence. It was built by Lord Chamberlain's men, a company of actors that included the most famous playwright of them all, William Shakespeare. Opened in 1599, the Globe played host to Shakespeare for 14 years, during which time he wrote many of his greatest works. The theatre was destroyed by fire in 1613 after its thatch was accidentally set alight by a cannon during a performance of Henry VIII. A new theatre was built in 1614 but was demolished in 1644 when all plays were banned by the Puritan Parliament. London's Las Vegas between 1613 and 1754, a legal loophole meant that on-the-spot marriages could be carried out in an area surrounding Fleet Debtors' Prison known as the Liberties of the Fleet. There is suspicion that some illicit matches took place, against the will of one or other of the parties. But judging from the number of unions made, estimated to be almost 250,000 in just 60 years up to 1753, it seems more likely that the ability to marry without parental consent might well have been the more common motivation. The liberties of the fleet in many ways resembled Las Vegas of today, a notorious area famed for debauchery, where the reach of the law was restricted. The London Stock Exchange was originally a coffee shop, in 1680, Jonathan Miles opened Jonathan's Coffee Shop in Bank. By 1690, there were more than 100 companies trading their shares in the city, and traders would meet at Jonathan's to gather news from other traders and from merchants entering the city via the Thames. At Jonathan's, the news was written up on boards behind the bar. Over time, traders developed a network of runners which would bring them all the latest on returning ships. When the coffee house burnt down in the Cornhill Fire of 1748, it was immediately rebuilt with the support of brokers and was given the name New Jonathan's. It was renamed the Stock Exchange in 1773. The Glamorous Lifetime of Thorny Island Originally formed by a loop of the Thames and the division of the Tyburn River, it is thought that Thorny Island may have been inhabited by the Romans. King Offa, who died in 796, issued a charter describing it as a loco terribili, while its modern name derived from the thorns that covered the area. It went on to become the site of Westminster Abbey and Westminster Palace, now better known as the Houses of Parliament. With the land drained and the river covered over, Thorny Island has long since disappeared. Although the name lives on in Thorny Street, which runs parallel to Millbank off Horse Ferry Road. Impaled Heads on London Bridge London Bridge has long been central to life in the capital, but one of its more macabre purposes 
was as a site for the display of traitors' heads, impaled on spikes to serve as a warning to others. In the late 16th century, Paul Hensner, a German visitor to the city, made some notes on the bridge. Upon this is built a tower, on whose top the heads of such as have been executed for high treason are placed on iron spikes. We counted above 30. Among those known to have suffered this fate through the centuries are William Wallace, Sir Thomas More and Thomas Cromwell. And if you visit the show notes and click on the link to this article, there are some drawings associated with the stories and as well a whole pile of links to other articles of interest. Worth a look if you're interested in the history of London. And from the atlasobscura.com, a story by Anna Kuzma. The legendary black surfer who challenged stereotypes. On June 5, 1951, 24-year-old Nick Gabaldon surfed his last wave in Malibu, California, crashing his board and disappearing into the water. In his short life, Gabaldon made an impact on surfing culture, which is still felt today. Credited as being one of the first documented surfers of African-American and Mexican-American descent, He is remembered as a rebel who challenged the idea of who belongs on California's beaches. On the boardwalk of Santa Monica's Bay Street Beach, within a small cluster of palm trees, is a small plaque that reads, A Place of Celebration and Pain. The plaque describes the fact that in the first half of the 20th century, this beach was one of the few beaches in Los Angeles County where African Americans felt they could come and enjoy the ocean free of harassment, and it's where Gabaldon got his start. Born in 1927, Gabaldon grew up and went to high school in Santa Monica. He would sometimes skip class to hang out at the beach, remembered his friend and classmate, Wayne King in a 2012 documentary called 12 Miles North. A skilled body surfer, Gabaldon gained the attention of Buzzy Trent who worked as a lifeguard and went on to become a famous surfer. Trent, who was white, took a liking to young Gabaldon and invited him to surf with him and his friends in Malibu. Gabaldon would famously paddle 12 miles from Santa Monica to surf with Trent in Malibu. 
It's really insanely hard to paddle that far, says Richard Yelland, director of 12 Miles North. Yelland doesn't know why Gabaldon paddled all the way to Malibu, but he says some people think it was to avoid racist confrontation outside the familiar boundaries of Santa Monica. What better way to access the beach if you weren't 100% welcome to walk across the sand, says Yelland. Gabaldon would have never become a surfer if it wasn't for his time riding waves at the Bay Street Beach. But besides the commemorative plaque, nothing at the beach serves to indicate the racial history of the place, which not only produced Gabaldon, but some of the country's most iconic African-American beach culture. Alison Rose Jefferson, an historian of California, wants to change that. Nick Gabaldon Day was first organised in 2013 by Jefferson and the Black Surface Collective as a way to give free introductory surf lessons to African-American kids in the community. Now the annual event draws in hundreds of people around Los Angeles. To begin the day, a group of surfers paddle out past the surf line and throw flowers in the water to honour lives lost in the ocean. The event is commemorating this fallen surface, says Jefferson, but also all the people who struggled to use that beach over the years. The programming has changed from year to year and has included documentary screenings, lectures and music. The annual June event focuses partly on the historic struggle of African Americans to hang out at beaches free of harassment. Even in California, where Jefferson says there was no official Jim Crow laws, discrimination was informally enforced through hostility or harassment, and more formally through real estate. According to her research, in the 1920s, Santa Monica officials stymied efforts of African-American investors to develop the waterfront. They tried to put up a beach resort, and the governmental authorities and the town's citizens said, no. You can't build your resort, says Jefferson. As soon as the land passed to non-African-American owners, officials changed the law and allowed white developers to build. Jefferson says that the pain on the Bay Street beach plaque refers to that racist history. However, many African-Americans who grew up going to the Bay Street beach don't associate it with pain. Carolyn Edwards, a 78-year-old African-American woman who grew up in Santa Monica and runs a local oral history project called the Quinn Research Centre, spent her childhood at the beach. She remembers going there with her family for holidays, having picnics and building sandcastles. It was not a place of pain and suffering, she says. If anything, it was joy and fun for kids. It was a family type of environment. Edwards says her uncles and friends were boogie boarders and body surfers and should be remembered alongside Gabaldon. They were also important to the history of the beach and they should be on the plaque as well, she says. Her list includes her uncle, Alfred Quinn, and his friends, Boyd Carter, A.D. Williams and R.C. Owen, to name a few. Jefferson says she thinks Gabaldon's fame has a lot to do with the fact that he was accepted by prominent white surfers in Malibu, such as Trent and Mickey Manoz. Whereas Edwards' friends and family might have gone unnoticed, Gabaldon's acceptance with that group put him on the map. The white people knew who he was, she says, 
and they're the ones who determined at some point who was important and who wasn't. Access to the water just isn't there, and if you don't have the resources to pay for it, it's hard. Nevertheless, his legacy, it seems, is important to a new generation of African-American surfers who, like Gabaldon, are trying to make space for themselves in the white-dominated and sometimes racially hostile culture of surfing. 51-year-old Remy Smith is a lifeguard captain with the Los Angeles Fire Department. He started surfing when he was 30, and now it's a huge part of his life. Smith says African-American surfers are often judged before they even hit the water. When Smith learned about Gabaldon, he was inspired. His story is definitely uplifting because he went through a lot at that time, he says. Smith says when he encounters racism when surfing, it motivates him to be better, and he imagines Gabaldon was probably the same way. People are telling you, you can't do it, and that makes you want to do it even more. You want to be stronger and better and work harder, he says. Smith has a house in Santa Monica, four blocks from the ocean, and his first time surfing was at the Bay Street Beach. He says the neighbourhood is almost entirely white-owned now, and he's one of the few African-American residents still living there. He has been to almost every Nick Gabaldon day and says he is most excited about getting people in the water. It's cool because they do surf lessons for kids and adults, he says. There's a lot of adults that can't even swim, and they need guidance and help. In Southern California, coastal access is dominated by majority white communities, and African Americans are among the lowest represented ethnicity in areas where the best beaches are. Racial demographic maps show non-Hispanic white populations form a strong majority among almost every coastal community on the Southern California coast. Coastal cities within Los Angeles County, such as Malibu and Santa Monica, are 84 and 65% non-Hispanic white, respectively, while the county is 27% non-Hispanic white as a whole. Within the city of Los Angeles, Beach areas such as Venice and the Pacific Palisades are 69 and 84% non-Hispanic white, respectively, despite being only a quarter of the city's population. Smith says there are only a handful of African-American lifeguards in the LA County Fire Department out of hundreds. When he goes to Nick Gabaldon Day, he is partly there to recruit young people to become lifeguards. He says a lot of children of colour living inland don't have the opportunity to explore Californian beaches. Access to the water just isn't there, he says. And if you don't have the resources to pay for it, it's hard. As part of this year's celebratory weekend, Jefferson organised panels, documentaries and discussions to allow the public to learn about the critiques of male and white-dominated surfing culture. The program included Elizabeth Pepin Silva's film La Maestra, which is about a female surfer in Mexico, and a panel about the critical surf studies reader, which explores how surfing was exploited by non-natives for tourism in Hawaii, among other critiques. Jefferson says these are critical counter-voices when it comes to understanding what surfing is and who's it for. Gabaldon was challenging racial hierarchies in the Jim Crow era, she says. These scholars and activists are challenging other things. They're all pioneers. 
Now the Bay Street Beach looks like just any other on the Los Angeles coast. It's a good spot for beginner surfers and hundreds can be found in the waves every weekend. As time passes, Jefferson and others feel it's important that its history is known. It's an evolving discovery, she says. Three days after his disappearance, Gabaldon's body was found by the Coast Guard and identified by his grief-stricken surfing friends. Multiple grown men cried to me when they recounted the story, says Yelland. They really felt that he was a beautiful example of a person who died way too young in a tragic accident. In his short life, Gabaldon managed to change the world of surfing. His trips from Santa Monica to Malibu allowed him to surf some of the best waves in the world with some of the most famous surfers at the time. His skill and character made him unforgettable. He was one of the guys in the water, says Yelland. Nick is a beacon in the sport of modern surfing. For almost two centuries, scientists have theorised that life may be distributed throughout the universe by meteoroids, asteroids, planetoids and other astronomical objects. This theory known as panspermia is based on the idea that microorganisms and the chemical precursors of life are able to survive being transported from one star system to the next. From the sciencealert.com website, A story by Matt Williams. The Milky Way could be spreading life from star to star. Just imagine. Expanding on this theory, a team of researchers from the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, or the CFA, conducted a study that considered whether panspermia could be possible on a galactic scale. According to the model they created, they determined that the entire Milky Way, and even other galaxies, could be exchanging the components necessary for life. The study Galactic Spermia recently appeared online and is being reviewed for publication by the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society. The study was led by Aiden Ginsberg, a visiting scholar at the CFA's Institute for Theory and Computation, the ITC and included Manasviv Lignum and Abraham Loeb, an ITC postdoctoral researcher and the director of the ITC, and Frank B. Baird Jr., chair of science at Harvard University, respectively. As they indicate in their study, most of the past research into panspermia has focused on whether life could have been distributed through the solar system or neighbouring stars. More specifically, these studies address the possibility that life could have been transferred between Mars and Earth or other solar bodies via asteroids and meteorites. For the sake of their study, Ginsberg and his colleagues cast a wider net looking at the Milky Way galaxy and beyond. As Dr Loeb told Universe Today via email, the inspiration for this study came from the first known interstellar visitor to our solar system, 
the asteroid Oumuamua. Following that discovery, Lingam and I wrote a paper where we showed that interstellar objects like Oumuamua could be captured through their gravitational interaction with Jupiter and the Sun. The solar system acts as a gravitational fishing net that contains thousands of bound interstellar objects of this size at any given time. These bound interstellar objects could potentially plant life from another planetary system and in the solar system. The effectiveness of the fishing net is larger for a binary star system like the nearby Alpha Centauri A and B, which could capture objects as large as the Earth during their lifetime. We expect most objects to likely be rocky, but in principle they could be icy or cometary in nature, Ginsberg added. Regardless of whether they are rocky or icy, they can be ejected from their host system and travel potentially thousands of light years away. In particular, the centre of the galaxy can act as a powerful engine to seed the Milky Way. This study builds on previous research conducted by Ginsberg, Loeb and Gary A. Wegner of the Wilder Lab at Dartmouth College. In a 2016 study published in the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society, they suggested that the centre of the Milky Way would be the instrument through which hypervelocity stars are ejected from a binary system and then captured by another system. For the sake of this study, the team created an analytic model to determine just how likely it is that objects are being traded between star systems on a galactic scale. As Loeb explained, in the new paper, we calculated how many rocky objects that are ejected from one planetary system can be trapped by another one across the entire Milky Way galaxy. If life can survive for a million years, there could be over a million Oumuamua-sized objects that are captured by another system and can transfer life between stars. Therefore, panspermia is not exclusively limited to solar system-sized scales, and the entire Milky Way could potentially be exchanging biotic components across vast distances. Our physical model calculated the capture rate of objects in the Milky Way, which strongly depended upon velocity and the lifetime of any organisms that may travel on the object, added Ginsberg. No one had done such a calculation before, and we feel this is quite novel and exciting. From this, they found that the possibility of galactic panspermia came down to a few variables. For one, the capture rate of objects ejected from planetary systems is dependent on the velocity dispersion as well as the size of the captured object. Second, the probability that life could be distributed from one system to another is strongly dependent upon the survival lifetime of the organisms. However, in the end, they found that even in the worst-case scenarios, the entire Milky Way could be exchanging biotic components across vast distances. In short, they determined panspermia is viable on galactic scales and even between galaxies. As Ginsberg said, smaller objects are more likely to be captured. If you consider Saturn's moon Enceladus, which is very interesting in itself, as an example, we estimate that as many as 100 million such life-bearing objects may have travelled from one system to another. Again, I think it's important to note that our calculation is for life-bearing objects.
The study also bolsters a possible conclusion raised in two previous studies, conducted by Loeb and James Gillichon, an Einstein Fellow with the ITC, back in 2014. In the first study, Loeb and Gillichon traced the presence of hypervelocity stars, or HVSs, to galactic mergers, which caused them to leave their respective galaxies at semi-relativistic speeds, one-tenth to one-third the speed of light. In the second study, Gillichon and Loeb determined that there are roughly a trillion HVSs in the intergalactic space, and that hypervelocity stars could bring their planetary systems along with them. These systems would therefore be capable of spreading life, which could even take the form of advanced civilizations from one galaxy to another. In principle, life could be transferred between galaxies since some stars escape from the Milky Way, said Loeb. Several years ago we showed with Gillichon that the universe is full of a sea of stars that were ejected from galaxies at speeds up to a fraction of the speed of light through pairs of massive black holes formed during galaxy mergers, which act as slingshots. These stars could potentially transfer life throughout the universe. As it stands, this study is sure to have immense implications for our understanding of life as we know it. Rather than coming to Earth on a meteorite, possibly from Mars or somewhere else in the solar system, the necessary building blocks for life could have arrived on Earth from another star system or another galaxy entirely. Perhaps someday we will encounter life beyond our solar system that bears some resemblance to our own, at least at the genetic level. Perhaps we may even come across some advanced species that are distant very distant relatives, and collectively ponder where the basic ingredients that made us all possible came from. From the amusingplanet.com, a story by Korshik, London's secret nuclear reactor. For more than 30 years, between 1962 and 1996, a nuclear reactor sat at the heart of London, tantalisingly close to a busy thoroughfare and to people's homes and public buildings. Its existence was so close to the metropolis, it was kept a secret from the public because to tell the truth would have been extremely controversial. The reactor was located at the basement of King William Building at the old Royal Naval College in Greenwich. The Royal Naval College was established in 1873 and was housed in the 17th century building complex designed by the highly acclaimed architect of the time, Sir Christopher Wren. The buildings originally housed the Greenwich Hospital a retirement home for disabled sailors of the Royal Navy. The word hospital merely meant a place providing hospitality. After the hospital closed in 1869, these buildings became the Royal Naval College where Navy officers were trained. 
In the beginning, the Royal Naval College was only a staff college where military officers were trained in the administrative duties of their profession. Later, with the transfer of the Royal Navy War College's activities from Portsmouth to Greenwich in 1914, the Royal Naval College began to provide technical trainings in tactical and strategic naval warfare as well. As the years rolled by, these trainings became more and more sophisticated. In the early 1960s, the Royal Naval College acquired a low-power nuclear reactor nicknamed Jason to educate and train military and civilian personnel involved in the Naval Nuclear Submarine Propulsion Program. The Argonaut series 10 kilowatt research reactor was previously operated by the Hawker Siddeley Nuclear Power Corporation at Langley. Compared to those in nuclear power stations, Jason was a small reactor measuring 12 feet high and was surrounded by more than 300 tonnes of steel and concrete to prevent any stray neutrons from escaping. Despite its small size, Jason was potent. According to The Independent, Jason used weapons-grade uranium 90% enriched, which made it 30 times more radioactive than that used in commercial reactors. It was like a ticking time bomb. Surely the Navy wasn't going to tell Londoners they have a nuclear bomb for a neighbour. So Jason was kept secret. For a long while he was part myth, writes the Greenwich Phantom. The weird thing is that I had heard from someone who worked with it directly, and who had no reason to lie, that it was just a model, that there was never any radioactivity in it. They just told the trainees there was, to make them deal with it seriously. The funny thing is, Greenwich was declared, and continues to be, a nuclear-free zone since 1963, a year after the nuclear reactor Jason went critical. In 1996, the Navy decided to decommission the Naval College and hand the property over to civilian use, which meant that Jason had to go. But getting rid of him completely proved to be no easy task. First, they had to disable the reactor itself and remove the operational equipment, which was the easy part, and completed swiftly. The hard part was removing the fuel and dismantling the reactor and the concrete cladding that had become irradiated by neutrons over the years. At that time, no nuclear reactor had ever been dismantled in Britain, so everything had to be learned from scratch. In the end, which took three years, a total of 270 tonnes of nuclear waste was removed from the area. In November 1999, the Environment Agency finally gave the radiological clearance. Today, live reactor training is carried out at the Imperial College Consort Reactor at Ascot. The Royal Navy also uses simulators to impart education and training of military and civilian personnel in the Naval Nuclear Propulsion Program at the Royal Navy School of Marine and Air Engineering at HMS Sultan, Gosport, Hampshire. And if you visit the show notes and click on the link to this article, as is usual, there are some really good photographs of the building itself. It's a very beautiful building, the Naval College building that is, and the control panel for the nuclear reactor.
From the atlasobscura.com, a story by Hunter Liu. The Mandatory Canteens of Communist China. They led to one of the worst famines in history. In 1958, Chinese communist cadre descended into farmers' homes on an official government mission to confiscate food supplies and cooking equipment and destroy private kitchens. Officially, the communist government demonised private kitchens as symbols of selfishness. But for Chinese farmers, this meant that the ubiquity of cooking and eating meals at home suddenly became illegal. The measure stemmed from Chairman Mao Zedong's Great Leap Forward, a series of communist government initiatives that revolutionised the Chinese countryside. Mao believed that agricultural collectivization was central to building a new socialist consciousness in China and thought of rural society as critically important to furthering the goal. The People's Commune, a system that consolidated farmers into communes averaging 23,000 members, also became pivotal to this ethos. Besides abolishing private property and dividing work among households, these communes centred around communal canteens, a free dining system designed to feed commune members. Communal dining didn't last all that long and was eliminated in 1962, but contemporary academics believed it played a major role in causing one of the worst famines in human history, killing an estimated 30 million people. Officially introduced in August 1958, the communes cropped up swiftly. By October 1958, 99.1% of all farmers were placed into communes containing 2.65 million canteens. Canteens varied in size. Some could serve 1,000 people during mealtimes and were constructed from confiscated tables, utensils and kitchen equipment. A ringing bell signified the start of mealtimes prompting farmers to line up single file to be served cafeteria-style rice or wheat buns, soup and vegetables before sitting down to eat in a central dining area. Although food was free, there was no other choice. Dining was restricted to canteens and all private kitchens and food supplies were banned. Still, most Chinese farmers kept private stockpiles of rice along with preserved foods to supplement fresh vegetables. But fearing confiscation, many farmers ate these stockpiles before the collectors came. And with all food grown by the farms sent directly to canteens, the entire food supply became monopolised into the canteen system. In the beginning, the canteens were treated like a miracle. A popular slogan invited diners to open your stomach eat as much as you wish and work hard for socialism. Farmers revelled in this new system and gorged themselves. Some farmers even ate when they weren't hungry. Author Han Suyin wrote an autobiography spanning her experiences in early communist China. Observed farmers stuffing themselves with vast amounts of pork flesh, each peasant eating and carousing. Why save? The government will provide. This is communism. This cavalier attitude meant that leftovers were thrown away, resulting in massive amounts of food waste. 
Problems arose almost immediately, and signs of famine appeared as early as the winter of 1958. Historically, Chinese farmers maintained food stockpiles to prepare for shortages or slow harvest years. In some of the new canteens, farmers ate through a six-month supply of rice in 20 days. According to professors Jean Hissen-Chang and Guazong James Rin, two historical experts on the famine, overconsumption and the canteen's monopoly on food became major catalysts for the famine. When famine conditions encroached, farmers had no access to their traditional supplies of food and were hostage to the dwindling food supply of the canteens. By spring 1959, the famine had metastasized beyond control and resulted in extreme misery. The carefree days of feasting quickly morphed into hunger. Accounts from famine survivors paint a grim picture. Famine survivor Lao Tian describes canteen meals during the famine as consisting of a bun or two with a bowl of water. At most we got to eat 500 grams of food a day. The buns were made of a mixture of corn and bark. Only very occasionally we got buns made of corn only. According to other accounts, average food amounts for farm labourers were as low as 150 to 200 grams of food per meal. Rice, a staple of the Chinese diet, was unavailable. Instead, meals during the famine included the likes of watery wheat porridge, sweet potatoes, sweet potato leaves, carrot leaves and hemp noodles, which were made by cutting the roots of the plant into long slivers. Farmers also ate the bark from parasol and locust trees. Massive corruption further exacerbated the problem. Corrupt cadre took advantage of their status to eat as much as they wanted from the canteens and often reported inflated agricultural production numbers. It didn't help that farmers had little incentive to work since everyone received the same food. They still had immense production goals at the time, which many farmers found impossible to fulfil. To combat the outsized production goals, inventive farmers created a method called roadside farming to fool government inspection teams. This method involved planting crops only on the fields closest to the roads and leaving the remaining fields outside of view deserted, which then misled government inspectors. Despite these deceptions, by the end of 1960, the rising death toll and drastic food shortages forced the government to acknowledge that the canteen system had failed. After a series of debates with high-ranking officials, Mao finally relented. All communal canteens were eliminated two years later. Despite the canteen system's disastrous consequences, Restaurants that harken back to Mao's China have emerged in cities such as Beijing and Chongqing. These spaces, with staff donning time-appropriate communist suits, use gimmicks to project nostalgia about a simpler time and a China that no longer exists. These modern restaurants, with their abundance of food, may have been close to what Mao originally imagined for his communal canteens. Only now it exists in ultra-capitalist modern China, an ironic twist of fate for the canteen of the People's Commune. And if you visit the show notes and click on the link, there are some photographs taken from the time.
And before we do our last story, just a few thank yous. The bandwidth for today's podcast is provided by TalkShoe at TalkShoe.com. The show notes are held at the Origins podcast website, which is origins.info. Our Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash Paul Rexy. And if you like the Origins podcast, by visiting the patreon.com forward slash Origins website, you can gain access to extra episodes of the Origins podcast by becoming a patron. I normally do one to two episodes of the Origins podcast each month. One is often a free one, and then the second one is a patrons-only one. So for the cost of one dollar or more if you wish, visit the patreon.com forward slash origins website, become a patron, and you will get access to these extra podcasts. Without the patronage for this podcast, this podcast wouldn't exist. So if you can help by becoming a patron, your help would be greatly appreciated. Remember, it's patreon.com forward slash origins. If you can't remember the link, just visit the show notes at origins.info and click on the link there. And from the itotd.com website, the interesting thing of the day, the Beale Ciphers. And this is written by Joe Kissel. Leaving aside religious symbology and questions of historical accuracy, the Da Vinci Code is just another in a long line of stories that follow roughly the same plot. Someone discovers a series of mysterious clues often with a code or a map thrown in, that supposedly lead to an absurdly valuable treasure. The hero undertakes a perilous adventure, outwitting villains who want to steal the treasure, as well as, perhaps, guardians who want to protect it, and eventually succeeds, only to discover that the treasure was not quite as it had been imagined after all. From Raiders of the Lost Ark to Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, to Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, to National Treasure. I've seen variations on this basic outline countless times. Few subjects ignite the imagination of the book-buying and film-going public as reliably as that of hidden treasure. In the real world, stories of codes leading to buried treasure rarely have tidy endings. And indeed, even separating fact from fiction can be nearly impossible. Such is the case with one of the most intriguing cryptographic puzzles in modern history. A series of encrypted messages dating from the 19th century, known as the Beale ciphers. These messages might lead to a hidden stash of gold, silver and jewels worth tens of millions of dollars. They might be genuine directions to a treasure that no longer exists. They might be a hoax or a joke. Or intriguingly, they might be a misunderstood charity fundraising gimmick. But whether or not the codes lead to treasure, what captivates and infuriates cryptographers is that despite more than a century's worth of effort by the best minds and machines, the most important part of the messages remain stubbornly 
opaque. Genesis of a Mystery The story goes approximately like this. A man named Thomas Beale, along with about 30 companions, set out to hunt game in New Mexico in 1817 and unexpectedly came upon a large deposit of gold and silver. After mining the treasure, the group made two trips across the country, in 1819 and 1821 to Bedford County, Virginia, where they buried the gold and silver along with some jewels they obtained along the way, in a stone-lined vault under six feet of soil. The men wanted to return to their mining site to retrieve a third batch of treasure in 1822. But before doing so, they took out an insurance policy of sorts in case something should happen to them. Beale wrote three encrypted messages, which contained, respectively, the exact location of the vault, its contents, and the names of the men in his party and their next of kin. He put these along with two letters of explanation in an iron box, which he entrusted to an innkeeper named Robert Morris. Beale mailed Morris a third letter from St. Louis some time later, saying that if he didn't return within ten years... Morris was to open the box and follow the instructions inside, some of which Morris would need a key to decipher. That key was to arrive in a fourth letter, which Beale had asked a friend in St. Louis to mail to Morris in ten years' time. Well, Beale and his entire party were never heard from again, and the promised fourth letter never arrived. Morris waited a full 23 years before opening the box, When he read the enclosed letter, he discovered that Beale wanted him to decipher the secret messages, retrieve the treasure and divvy it out to the men's families, keeping a share for himself for his troubles. Without the missing key, though, Morris couldn't make sense of the encrypted messages, which consisted of nothing but a long list of numbers. After a further 17 years and shortly before his death, Morris passed the box on to a friend who was able to decipher one of the three messages. The one detailing the treasure's contents, but not the other two. In 1885, a man named James Ward, acting on behalf of Morris's friend, published and sold a 23-page pamphlet known as the Beale Papers that included the text of Beale's letters and encrypted messages, as well as the solution to the deciphered message. Ever since, treasure hunters and codebreakers have tried unsuccessfully to decrypt the other two messages and find Beale's treasure. By the book. The message Morris's friend successfully deciphered used a cryptographic technique called a book cipher. To make a book cipher, you start with a document any document, as long as the person writing the message and the person reading it have identical copies, and number all the words consecutively. This becomes your key. Then to create your cipher text, you look through your key for each word you want to encode and write down its number. In this case, the message was encrypted letter by letter, with each number in the cipher text referring to the first letter of the corresponding word in the key. For example, if my key were interesting one, thing two, of three, the four, day five, the cipher 5312 would represent do it. 
Beale used a version of the Declaration of Independence as the key for his second message, but no one has been able to determine what key was used for the other two, or in fact, whether they even used the same encryption method. Doubts and Suspicions Predictably, after many decades of failed attempts to decipher the two remaining messages, popular opinion began leading towards the notion that the whole thing had been a hoax and that the encryption could not be broken because there was no underlying message. Numerous analyses by professional and amateur cryptanalysts over the years have yielded some interesting observations. For example, statistical evidence strongly suggests that the same person who wrote the Beale papers also wrote Beale's letters, casting doubt on the authenticity of both. Likewise, an analysis of one of the undeciphered messages using the Declaration of Independence as a key revealed patterns that are mathematically unlikely to have occurred with any other key. In other words, someone may have used the Declaration of Independence to encipher random gibberish. Furthermore, the story itself contains many suspicious elements. There appear to be no records of any of the 30 men in Beals's party and even the existence of Thomas Beale himself is a matter of some uncertainty. His messages contain some historical errors and apparent anachronisms. And there would appear to be no good reason to encrypt each of three messages individually, using separate keys. In all, the story sounds too much like the plot of a cheap novel, which according to one theory, is exactly what it is. Some researchers believe that the Beale Papers was written anonymously by a playwright and novelist named John W. Sherman and distributed by Ward, a close relative. Not as a hoax or a scam, but as a fundraiser. The pamphlet was published shortly after a major fire in Lynchburg, Virginia, that killed five men. Ward and Sherman may have cooked it up to help raise money to provide for the bereaved families with the assumption that purchasers would realise it was a work of fiction. According to this theory, only later after the story had gained some popularity, was it sold more widely and with less virtuous goals. Another theory holds that the pamphlet was written by none other than Edgar Allan Poe to be published posthumously as a sort of final mystery from the great beyond. The text does contain some similarities to Poe's writings, so it seems likely that even if Poe did not write it, the author tried deliberately to emulate his style in numerous details. Take it on faith. Many people, however, still believe that the messages are just what they appear to be. In 2001, a website appeared claiming that a man named Daniel Cole had deciphered the two remaining messages and located the spot where the treasure had been buried, only to find that it was already gone. Mr Cole apparently died that same year, and although the site shows the supposedly decrypted messages, as well as pictures of the alleged burial spot, the site's maintainers have not revealed the key or keys they used meaning that no one can verify or disprove their claim. Then in 2018, another rather bizarre site appeared with claims that a group had not only deciphered the location, but also found the vault itself. However, the location was not revealed, 
no evidence of a treasure was shown, and all members of this group are conveniently anonymous. So their purported solution is thus far less convincing. In other words, show me the money. Whichever of these theories, if any, is correct, the world may never know the truth, just as an empty hole is no proof that it once contained treasure. Statistical analysis of a still undeciphered message is no proof that it's meaningless. It might have been a laundry list, a practical joke, or the real thing. But the Beale papers did contain a cautionary note, which read in part, Again, never, as I have done, sacrifice your own and your family's interests to what may prove an illusion. Those who followed the author's advice not to waste more time than they could spare on cracking the code may have been the wisest of all. Well, good friends, that concludes episode 180 of the Origins podcast. Hope you enjoyed today's show. And remember, if you can become a patron of the show and help to ensure the podcast's survival, your help would be greatly appreciated. So until next time, this is Paul saying bye for now, everyone. Keep well, keep safe, and thank you for listening. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchases, full work limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.